I hope I'm not the first person to say welcome. Welcome to uh, Cornerstone and Pickle Baptist Church. We're two churches gathering together, by God's grace, hoping to become one new church. And um, we'd like to say welcome to you. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, please go to Matthew chapter 28. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And you'll find Matthew chapter 28 on page 835 of the Black Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have one at home, please just steal that one. Um, the Bible says don't steal, but give me permission to take that one home. And that is this congregation's gift to you. We are at the end of a, she- a, sh- a short series that we're doing on what is a church. And as I just mentioned, we're two churches seeking by God's grace to come together as one new church. And the elders are working hard, bringing our two churches together. And so I thought that it would be wise for us to spend some time considering what the Bible teaches about what is a church. And so here's what we've learned so far. We've learned that a church is God's redeemed community that is built on Jesus Christ, that she proclaims Jesus Christ, that she models Jesus Christ, and that she points everyone to Jesus Christ. We've learned that she is led by qualified men called elders or pastors who care for her spiritual well-being through the ministry of the Word. We've learned that she is served by qualified individuals called deacons, who care for her physical needs, who preserve her unity. So appreciate my brother pastor praying for unity, the ministry of the deacons, and also who support the ministry of the Word in and through the church. So that's what we've learned so far. And this morning, we're going to end this series by seeking an answer to the question, why? Like, as Pastor Steve is fond of saying, what's it for? What's it for? What is the mission of the church? And so there's a lot of places in the New Testament that we could go to find an answer, but I find the best place to go is Matthew chapter 28. And so I will read verses 16 down to the end of the chapter, verse 20. Ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll get to work working through this a little bit at a time. should be around 45 minutes or so. Hear now the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess to a need that we need your Holy Spirit to lead us. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us. We need your Holy Spirit to enlighten 
our minds and hearts in order that we might be able to receive from your word what it is that you have for us. Speak, O Lord, your servants listen. Amen. I have a question. If you are a Christian, why did God save you? Have you ever wondered about this? Why did God save you? Because He loved you? Sure. I think we could find some Bible verses which would support that. God does love you. But is that the only reason God saved you? I mean, think about it. God saved you. He gave you eternal life. He secured your place in heaven forever. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you're in. Like, you're the most in you will ever be. Jesus rose from the dead. The crowds have rushed the field. The game is won. It is finished. Praise the Lord. And this is what we celebrate every Sunday. And this is what we should celebrate every Sunday. So if all of that is true, and it is, why does God keep you alive? If your place in heaven is secure, why keep you here now? If God has built for you an eternal house in paradise, and He has the power to bring you there anytime He wants, why keep you in the slums of this present darkness? Why keep you in this existence with all of its pain and disappointments and hardships and afflictions and heartbreak? If God's only goal is to get you to heaven, then this life makes no sense. And the best thing that we pastors can do for you is to read you the Bible and to ask you, do you believe this? And the moment we hear you say yes, we shoot you in the face and send you to heaven before you screw it up. But our God has not equipped evangelists with a Bible and a gun. So there has to be more to the reason that God has saved you. And there is. And when you see this reason, and when you believe this reason, when you accept this reason, it will be the biggest mind shift that you have made since becoming a Christian. Your life will become weighty, every breath significant. Even affliction and suffering and heartbreak becomes massively important, imminently meaningful. And as a Christian, there are few things more important than knowing this. As our two churches are seeking to become one new church, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that there is nothing more important to us 
than knowing our purpose. The reason that God has created this church and keeps it alive. Because when a church loses sight of her God-given purpose, she turns inward and she shrinks and she becomes a social club until she dies. And I'm afraid there are a lot of dead churches who don't know that they're dead. And one telltale sign that a church has lost her way is that she begins to squabble over the inconsequential. She begins to bicker about style and matters of personal preference. And her budget becomes more about maintaining than about mission. More about sustaining than sending. She turns inward. She shrinks. She becomes a social club. And then she dies. The mission of the church of Jesus Christ, and this is the main point, is to make disciples by proclaiming Christ. The mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples of Jesus Christ by proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose for which God created her. And how she goes about that mission depends upon her context. Her mission never changes. Her message never changes. But her methods must change. And you'll notice that the Apostle Paul shared the gospel differently in Athens than he did in Jerusalem. His mission was the same. His method was different. His message was the same. His method was different. So we make disciples of Jesus Christ by proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ. All to the glory of Jesus Christ. And since this is the mission of the church, then it stands to reason that this is the mission of the people of the church. The mission of the people of Jesus Christ is to be disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ. That is... My mission, and if you're a Christian, that is your mission. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ, and God has given you responsibility and privilege to make disciples for Jesus Christ. And this is why God keeps you alive in this life. I will endeavor to show you this from Scripture. Three points will guide us along as we go. First, I want you to see that we are all disciples. All of us are disciples. should not be a novel concept. And second, I want to show you that all disciples make disciples. We are all disciples, and all of us make disciples. Then we'll end our time together considering four ways. Four ways that you can start today making disciples. 
Let's go back to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 again. Just, just verse 16 to kind of set up the context here. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. This passage takes place after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's why that matters, because God chose a people for Himself. He revealed Himself to those people. He brought them to a mountain, and He gave them His Word, His law, the way that they were to live as His special chosen people. And they, Israel, were to model Him before the nations of the world. They were to show the nations of the world who God was and what God was like. And Israel failed at this. Rather than be being different from the surrounding nations, they became much like the surrounding nations, often worshiping the false gods of the surrounding nations. God saw this, and rather than wiping them out, starting anew, God showed them mercy. And he disciplined them. He would send prophets to warn them. He would send enemies to invade them, to discipline them, and they would repent for a time. And then they would fall back into idolatry. And this would go on, this cycle, for centuries. And all of this, much of the New Testament, was meant to show us that mankind on our own cannot do what God has called us to do. And so God entered into human history as a man. Jesus Christ is God who came to do what Israel failed to do. Jesus lived God's law perfectly. And He showed everyone who God is and what God was like. He told the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God thinks and how God feels, you look at Jesus. He came to show the heart of God and to stand in our place. To take the penalty of our disobedience of God's commands, our sins. And on the cross... Jesus gave His life to pay the penalty the sinners justly deserved. He died, laid in a grave, and then three days later, God raised Him from the dead. And now all who believe in Jesus Christ, who turn to Him in faith, are forgiven of their sins and counted righteous before God, granted eternal life. So if you're not a Christian, you should do that today. Stick around after the service is over. A number of us will just hang around here for a little bit. Tap one of them on the shoulders. Tell them you would like to become a Christian. They'll set aside a time during their week to meet with you. We'll begin you helping you become a Christian and follow Jesus. The passage that we have just read takes place after the resurrection. And Jesus told his disciples, go to Galilee. I have more to teach you. And notice there's a few things here about discipleship. Every Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Every Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. The word disciple means someone who follows Jesus, who learns from Jesus. So keep your finger in Matthew chapter 28 and turn backwards to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, it's page 816 of the church Bible. I think we'll have it up on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 11. So tell us a little bit more about what it means to be a disciple. Matthew chapter 11, let's read it, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking to His disciples. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So three things to note quickly here. First, a disciple is someone who turns to Jesus Christ. That Jesus revealed God the Father to them. That's verse 27. They realized they were sinners. They felt the burden of their sin, and they turned to Jesus for forgiveness. He said, come to me. That's verse 28. A disciple is someone who comes to Jesus. Second, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. You see this in verse 29. They have taken His yoke upon them, meaning that He leads them. The yoke is the thing that farmers would use to tie two oxen together so that they would pull in the same direction under the leadership of the farmer. So the yoke is the thing that keeps them going in the same direction, and the farmer can direct them one way or the other. So a disciple is someone who comes to Jesus and who follows Jesus. And then third, we see that the disciple is someone who learns Jesus. This you read in verse 29, they learn of Him. Come and learn of me. The word disciple means learner, pupil, student. So a disciple is someone who turns to Christ, follows Him, and learns from Him. If you are a Christian, this is what you are. You are a disciple. You follow Jesus. You learn Jesus. Where He sends you, you go. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. It means that God calls the shots in your life. So back to Matthew chapter 28. The disciples of the risen Lord Jesus Christ are brought to a mountain. And God gives them His word. Sound familiar? They are His people. They receive their marching orders from Him. So let's keep reading. Verse 17 following. Matthew 28, 17. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And they came and they said, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are all disciples, and all disciples make disciples. Notice in verse 17, there are varied levels of spiritual maturity, even among the eleven, even post-Jesus' resurrection. Some see the risen Lord, and they fall down at His feet, and they worship Him straight away, while others doubt Him. I mean, just three days earlier, they watched Him tortured and murdered on a cross, buried in a tomb, and now they see Him in the flesh, and He's speaking to them, and they doubt. And to this varied group of disciples at varying spiritual levels, the Lord issues to each one of them this command. We call this the Great Commission. And it is anchored 
in the greatest reality of all, the bedrock of verse 18, the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. It's the same thing he said back in chapter 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. The Bible says that all things have been put under Jesus' feet. He is the head and rule of all authority. He is the heir of all things. That God's whole purpose in creation was to unite all things in Christ. Ephesians 1.10 The sovereign rule of Christ commands the mission and guarantees its success. The sovereign rule of Christ commands the mission and guarantees its success. Because Christ has rule over all things in heaven and earth, we make disciples of all nations. The sovereignty of God commands the mission of God and guarantees its success. So Christians carry the gospel message across cultures across continents, not hoping that God's will will be done, but knowing that God's will will be done. Because they can fast forward in history and see that in Revelation chapter 5, the crowd that's surrounding the throne comes from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so that means that wherever I go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Someone will be saved to add their voice to the praise of Almighty God in heaven. Because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. There are seven verbs in verses 19 and 20. Seven verbs. Only one command. You, you, can, see, you can see the passage up here. There are seven verbs in two verses, and only one of them is an imperative. Only one of them is a verb of command. Make disciples is the only imperative verb in those two verses in the Great Commission. All the other verbs that surround make disciples are a description of what making disciples is. So the word go is not an imperative. Actually, it's, a, it's in the passive form. It could be translated as, as you go, or in your going, make disciples. Go and baptize and teach, these are all participles, meaning they describe what making disciples is, what it looks like. So making disciples is the command, and all the other verbs tell us how to make disciples. In your going, make disciples. This means that as you go along, as you go about your life, your God-given life, make disciples of all nations. All disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. Discipling is not the job of the pastors. It's the job of the people of whom a pastor plays a part. 
This is why we're still here. This is why God gives us breath so that we can make disciples. It is job number one, mission critical. It is the purpose for which we exist, to bring glory to God in the making of disciples for Christ. In your going, make disciples. In your going, you're going to meet people who don't know Jesus Christ. And you tell them about Him. You engage them in conversation. You evangelize them to the Lord. In your going, you will meet people who do know Jesus Christ. You will encourage them. You will equip them. As you grow in your knowledge of God and in your satisfaction in Christ, you share Him with others. One of the marks, probably one of the clearest marks of a mature Christian is that they are outward focused, focused on others rather than on themselves. Notice the great commission is the logical result of the great commandment. The Great Commission is the logical result of the Great Commandment. Do you know the Great Commandment? It's up here on the screen. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 39. We'll flesh this out over the next several weeks. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Making disciples is the outworking of a heart that delights in the surpassing pleasures of God in Christ. It's just what you do when you love something that much. This is how God has built love to work. Our love of an object increases and deepens the more we share that thing. This is what you're saying when you say to a friend, Oh, I wish you were there. You're saying, I wish I could have shared that experience that I loved with you. Because my pleasure in the thing would have increased had you been here. So many Christians, I'm afraid, are living in the squalor of spiritual poverty because their enjoyment of God has never extended beyond the boundaries of their own life. This is why so many churches, the congregation becomes a consumer. Just take and take. Preach for me, preacher. Do the dance. Encourage me, preacher. And if you don't, I'll find someone else who will. So many preachers become shackled by their own congregation's consumeristic misunderstanding of what it is that we're doing. But you know, the demand is partially right. This is for you. You should be saying, preach for me, preacher. Tell me, Jesus. Reveal him to me. 
Show him to me. Teach me about his excellencies. Because you need to see them. But not just see them. You need to see them so that you can share them with someone else. So the preacher exists to show the excellencies of Christ and to build you up and to encourage you in the Lord, to equip you, to increase your joy in Christ so that you would be equipped to share that joy with those inside the church and with those outside the church. Back to Matthew chapter 28. In your going, make disciples of who? Of all nations. All the nations. Now that word nations is, I don't like usually using Greek words because they're just not helpful, but the word is ethos. It's not geopolitical nations. Missiologists have defined it, I think, better as people groups. So there are something like 270 or so geopolitical nations in the world today. And there are something like 17,000 people groups. And this word means people groups. Make disciples of people groups. Of those 17,000 people groups, something like 7,000 of them are considered unreached. An unreached people group is a, is a group of people who aren't Christian and they don't know anyone who is. And they have no access to a Christian church if they wanted to. Some of us will have the privilege to sell everything that we have and to cross cultures and to live among one of those unreached people groups and to proclaim Christ in their language. Most of us, our going and making disciples will be local. We will give sacrificially to send missionaries to plant churches among the unreached. And we will walk out the command of making disciples by sending and by staying. The point is that the Great Commission is not for missionaries only. It is for all disciples. Because all disciples are disciple-making disciples. So what does it mean then, make disciples? Well, we have two more verbal adjectives here, baptize and teach, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And primarily, this means water baptism, of course, because one of the first acts of obedience after becoming a Christian is to go public with your faith in baptism being immersed into water as an outward sign of what God has done in your life. Lord willing, we're going to get to witness a baptism next Sunday morning. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins, if you can see that your, your heart has been changed and others in your life can tell that you're different, then can I just encourage you, if you haven't already, to get baptized. Talk to one of the pastors around here. Part of making disciples involves baptism. All believers 
are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, into the fellowship of the triune God. And you walk out that baptism, that communion within the triune God in the context of your local church, which is the body of Christ. And that brings us then to the next verbal adjective, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. All disciples make disciples by helping people get baptized and by teaching them to obey the commands of Christ. Remember, a disciple is someone who comes to Christ, a person who follows Christ, and a person who learns Christ. And part of making disciples involves teaching people, teaching someone how to observe all that Christ has commanded. As we learn Christ, we teach Christ. Remember, we are a people built on Christ, to model Christ, to proclaim Christ, to point others to Christ. And that's what this is. This is what we proclaim. Listen to the Apostle Paul's description of his ministry in Colossae. This is up on the screen here. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Listen to what Paul says. This is how he does ministry. Him, that's Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. In your going, with the energy that God supplies, proclaim, warn, teach, prepare, make disciples. Now, let's be honest. Making disciples sounds intimidating. I can barely follow Jesus on my own. How am I supposed to tell someone else how to follow Jesus? I'm still trying to figure out all that He commanded me. How am I supposed to tell somebody else all that He commanded me? And so what we'll do for the remaining time that we have together is explore what discipling looks like in the context of a local church. And I hope, this is something I've prayed for about this message. I hope that in hearing these four things, that you will be encouraged to learn you're already doing many of them. You're already doing these things. Four ways to make disciples in the local church. Number one, the first way we make disciples is by showing up at church. You are discipling by simply turning up on the Lord's day. So come to church. Come early, 10, 15 minutes early, engage someone in a conversation, ask them how they're doing, ask them how their week has been going. You might ask them how you can be praying for them. I, I can't tell you how many times I've come in through that door and walked into this room and seen two or three people gathered together praying for one another, and it encourages my heart. That disciples me. Your physical presence is a discipling tool. To others. It reminds your brothers and sisters that the gospel that you believe in got you through another week and God kept you by His power and brought you here. And that same gospel which got you here 
is the same gospel they believe in. And so next week when they have to face the thing that they have to face, they can remember that God heard through it. God kept her. And he'll keep me. You disciple. By simply showing up. Another way you disciple is by singing. You get to church early. Get in your seat before the church starts. You know who you are. Add your voice to the rest of our voices as we sing. Did you know there is a horizontal element to congregational singing as well as a vertical element? Ephesians 5, 29. Put it up on the screen for us. Addressing Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Addressing one another, there's the horizontal, and singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, there's the vertical. Both are happening. Music leaders are meant to do their job so well that they disappear. That we as a congregation are focused on one thing, singing about the manifold excellencies of our God and Savior. And they serve us so well when they do that. When you do that, you adding your voice to the hundreds of others, it is discipling. A few minutes ago, we sang these words. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. And you sang it, and I know what's going on in your heart. I know the sea billows that have billowed over your life and the affliction you have endured. And you said, it is well, it is well with my soul. You discipled me. You made me want to trust my Savior like that. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Thank you. I just need to say thank you for your singing voices. I may have mentioned this before. It's my favorite part of Sunday mornings. It is my favorite part. When you sing with one voice. And I know for some of you, the style isn't your favorite. The songs we pick aren't your favorite. And you disciple me with your humility, with your grace, with your care, Adding your voice to the many others. Anyway, God bless you and thank you. So come to church.
sing in church. And then third, join the church. If the Lord wills that our two churches come together, and we have an opportunity to enter into a covenant with one another in membership. And church membership is not like club membership. It's a covenant relationship. It is a commitment to care for and invest in the spiritual well-being of someone else. So listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a good summary of what membership is. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The New Testament envisions a church with locked arms. So that when one of us is enduring some affliction, some difficulty, some hardship, it pulls on me and I strengthen my commitment to that person. When you're feeling weak, let me hold on to Jesus. I got you. And then when one member is, is honored and lifted up, we're all lifted with him. Not one person is expendable. So if you have a chance this afternoon, read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It is a wonderful description of church membership. In there, Paul will say, one member can't say to another member, I don't need you. Because you do need her. You do need him. We are mutually dependent beings, dependent on Christ and dependent on one another. Fourth, and finally, you disciple by investing in the spiritual well-being of another person. You disciple by investing in the spiritual well-being of another person. Now, some of you have been wondering, how, how do I get involved? How might I serve? Where, can I, where do I fit in? What part do I play? And this is one of my favorite questions to receive. Love the question. And my simple answer is this. The single greatest thing you can do for your church is to invest in the spiritual well-being of someone else in your church. It's the single greatest thing you can do. Do a Bible study with someone. Just read a section of Scripture. Discuss it over coffee or over lunch. Pray together. Perhaps you read a book that the Lord used fruitfully in your own life. Share it with someone. Read it again with them. Discuss it. And pray together. Just pick one person. Teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Join a small group. Every Christian is capable of doing this. Listen to Paul to Timothy. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. <laughs> Look what is envisioned in Paul's statement here. It's one simple statement. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice there are four generations of Christians in that little verse. Four. 
Paul taught Timothy to teach others who teaches others. Paul is looking forward to his great-grandchildren in the faith. I wonder if anyone else here has such a vast view of the gospel's ministry through your own life. That you're investing, not just in one person you're sitting in front of you, but your great-grandchildren in the faith. Some of you are already doing these things. I thank God every time I hear about sisters meeting together, talk about the things of God, brothers reaching out to one another, doing something together and talking about God together. Ladies doing a Bible study over a book. Couples reaching out to other couples and offering to watch their kids so they can have a date night. Folks inviting people into their home for dinner, for encouragement. Just last week, I picked up some resources for a couple sisters in the church who are receiving some training so they can do biblical counseling. There are a thousand ways to be a disciple-making disciple in this church, and many of you are already doing them. And I'm encouraged by this, and I'm thankful for this. I want to strengthen that and encourage it even more. The church may be about many things, but she must be about this thing more than any of the other things. She exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ by proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ as a means to display the glory of God to all who will see. This is why God has kept you alive and why he hasn't taken you home yet. You have some discipling work to do yet. When you wake up in the morning and you take that first breath, pray to the Lord. Father, thank you for this new day that you have made for me. How might I serve your great purpose in making much of your son, discipling someone else? And then give your life for that. And be faithful in all the things that God has given you to do. And God will take glory that he deserves through your life. And then when you're done, you go home. And you get to rest. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are not our own. But that we have been bought with a price. Body and soul. We belong to you. We are yoked to you. You direct our lives. And we confess, Father, readily that we have made our lives about things other than discipling. And sometimes, Lord, we've even muffled the voice of your Holy Spirit by cramming our life full of things so that we don't have to listen. So you badger us. Please, please forgive us. Thank you for reminding us of our purpose. And for anyone here who has felt the sting of this rebuke, Lord, please encourage them. Gently draw them to your son and grant them faithfulness and response and obedience. And anyone here feeling aimless in their life, may they feel awakened by the reminder of their purpose. Enable us, O Lord, to work and to give ourselves to the mission of your church. 
to making disciples. Until Christ is all. Until he receives the praise that is due to his name. To this end we pray. Amen. Here's your assurance of pardon. Please stand. I'll read it over you. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your assurance of pardon comes from Psalm 86, which we read at the opening. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you.